Well, good evening. Good to see everybody. Glad that you're here. Looking forward to our study tonight. Turn to Psalm 27. That's where we're eventually going to land tonight. It's the 27th Psalm that we'll be looking at, and it's good to see everybody. Glad to have those joining us online. We always have a good group, Sundays and Wednesdays both. So wherever you are and however you're joining us, we welcome you tonight as well. Let's pray together, ask God's blessings upon our time together as we study. Father, thank you for the day you've given us, and God, as we come to the close of our day, it's good on this um, in the middle of the week to gather with your people to study your word. And Father, just uh, see what you have to us uh, for us from your word. And your word is truth. Uh, we know that, and we follow each word that you've given to us, knowing that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God's profitable for us. So, Lord, tonight would you open up the passages and let us um, hear your voice as you're speaking to us. Thank you for everyone here. Pray your blessings upon them. And may the Holy Spirit be our teacher this evening. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Well, we are between book studies now. As you know, we finished up Revelation. We went to Zechariah verse by verse. Both of those books finished those up. And during the summer months, we are looking at different topics and texts and uh, different assorted ones the next three Wednesday nights, right here in the worship center, we're going to having, be having a series called What's Happening? And we're wondering what's happening in our culture with all kind of things going on. And many of them, how do we respond as believers to what's going on, whether it's gender, uh, gender identity, uh, everything that's going on, how do we respond to that biblically? What does Scripture say? And so we, for the next three Wednesday nights, have invited three different experts to come in, all in their 30s, experts on issues that face uh, the culture today and the families today primarily, and looking at what what the Bible says about each one. Katie Fruget will be here next Wednesday night, Katie McCoy the following Wednesday night, and then um, Shane Pruitt after that will be here on platform. You'll have the opportunity to ask questions uh, before it's over. And um, next Wednesday night, Katie Fruget is going to be talking about artificial intelligence and the metaverse and how that affects the church and what should be our response to it. A fascinating study. I think that you're going to hear from Katie next week. And then Katie McCoy, the following week uh, on gender identity, has a new book out that's really going up pretty high on the uh, top 10, in fact, in Christian circles. And so uh, she'll be here, and then the following week, Shane Pruitt will wrap up cultural issues the church faces and how we are to respond. I think you'll enjoy it, and I think it'll be very helpful for the next three Wednesdays. That's August 9th, August 16th, and August the 23rd. And then the following week after that, August the 30th, we'll start our book study of First Peter, verse by verse, a study entitled Culture Shock. Uh, and we'll be looking at that. First Peter relates a lot to what we're going through today. Believers in that day, uh, as they were scattered to various parts of the empire, uh, were facing Christianity was basically a, a belief system that was being shunned. And so believers really were in a culture shock as they're trying to live out their faith, much like we are today. And so I think First Peter will really relate to us. And I think that you'll enjoy that verse by verse. That starts August the 30th. That'll take us then through the fall. So tonight, between book studies, I've been trying to look at maybe various books of the Bible that we don't talk a whole lot about. We do the Psalms, but not uh, 150 of them, and so we don't do them a lot. But what I wanted to do tonight was introduce you to other books of the Bible. We looked at Leviticus uh, a while back and kind of saw an overview of it. 
uh, looked at a passage, and tonight I want us to look at an overview of the Psalms and look at Psalm 27. So that's what we'll be doing tonight. I'd like to introduce you to other books of the Bible, other genres of Scripture that we don't cover maybe in a series on Sunday morning uh, or a study on Wednesday night. So tonight's study is entitled, The Lord is My Light and My Salvation. The reason I titled it that is paying homage, I guess you might say, to the Hebrews because they would often name their books the first word or the first phrase of the book whether it's Exodus or whatever. Uh, and so that's why, uh, they, 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 for example, the Shema is called Shema because it's the first Hebrew word in the Deuteronomy 6 passage. So they do that a lot. Whatever the first word or phrase is, that's the name of it. And so tonight, uh, the Lord is my light and my salvation is our study. Look at letter A, first of all, on your outline the, about the Psalms. Let's talk just a little bit about them. Psalms, as you know, are songs, S-O-N-G-S, what we would know as a song. So the Psalms, 150 of them in our Bible, is the songbook, it's the hymnal for the ancient Jews. So they would put this to music, put these to music, and they would sing them. There are individual songs which, if you, if you look at all 150 of them, just about any human problem you have is addressed somewhere in the Psalms. Some of the most beautiful poetry you're going to, to read anywhere, hear anywhere, found in the Psalms. Now, where do we get the name Psalms from? Actually, the name Psalms is from the Greek, psalmoi, uh, P-S-A-L-M-O-I. It literally means song in Greek. So a psalmoi in Greek is a song. So that's why we call them the psalms. The Hebrews call them the tehillim. So if we were calling the, the psalms what the Greeks call them, the Hebrews rather than the Greeks, we'd be calling it the book of tehillim. So they call it the tehillim, which means praises. Uh, and so that's, what, that's the, what the Hebrews call it. All 150 psalms come from diverse periods of Israel's history. Not just one time period. I mean, they cover a long time period, basically from 1450 B.C. all the way to 586 B.C. It's what the happenings, uh, the, the events took place in the Psalms. So it's over a diverse period of Israel's history. Throughout the Psalms, you hear the psalmist crying out, God, where on earth are you? Have you ever wondered that before? Going through things, God, where are you? Why can't I hear from you? Why are you not telling me anything? Uh, Saying, why do I feel like you're not there? These are all cries that come from the Psalms. But also, not just cries, there are declarations of faith. God, I am going to trust in you regardless. And sometimes you and I have those declarations of faith. God, I don't understand it. I'm going to trust you. And those declarations of faith come from the Psalms as well. So, the Israelites, would, the Jews, would use, and still do, use the Psalms as songs, and they would accompany these Psalms with uh, musical instrumentation. They would accompany it with the, with the uh, lyre, with the flute, with the horns, with cymbals. In fact, 1 Chronicles 23.5 tells us that David put together a 4,000-piece orchestra to sing the psalm. 4,000 pieces 
to sing the psalms in a worship service. So, these, as I said, written over various periods from 1450 to 586. However, into the intertestament period, they were still being collected. So, between the testaments, between the Old Testament and New Testament, they were still collecting them. Of course, God had, a, I think, had a hand in the, in the uh, process of being collected, but they collected them long past the time that, of which they were written. You see the word Selah, S-E-L-A-H, through the Psalms, and 71 times in the Psalms you see that word. At the very bottom, sometimes you notice, what does Selah mean? It's just a musical rest. It just tells them, okay, we're to rest right here in the, in the singing of it or the playing of it. So the Selah is not necessarily a part of a psalm. It's just, uh, it's just a musical rest. Now let's talk about letter B about the authors of the psalms because most people think David wrote the psalms and he wrote half of them, but not the other half. So David wrote 73 psalms of the 150. He wrote 73 that we know of because it has his name ascribed to David. Uh, 50 of the Psalms, we don't know who wrote them. The author is not mentioned. Did David write some of those 50 that aren't probably so, that aren't mentioned who the author is? Probably so. So David most likely wrote more than half of the Psalms, but not all of the Psalms. Well, who else wrote the Psalms? Well, several men we know. Uh, Solomon wrote some. We know that. One of the wisest men who ever lived. A man by the name of Etan the Ezraite. He wrote at least one of them. Uh, he wrote Psalm 89 that we know of. And so Etan the Ezraite wrote one of the Psalms. Who's Etan the Ezraite? Well, we don't really know much about him. We do know that he was a very wise man because... In 1 Kings um, 4.31, we're told that Solomon became the wisest man in the entire world, and he was even wiser than Etan the Ezraite, is what we're told in 1 Kings 4.31. So, if you have to say he's even wiser than Etan, Etan must have been a pretty wise man. So, he wrote at least one of them. Uh, Heman, H-E-M-A-N, looks like He-Man. Heman wrote at least one of them. He was another wise man associated with Etan. He wrote Psalm 88 that we know of. Uh, Asaph wrote 12 psalms that we know of. Asaph was the chief musician appointed by David. He was David's music minister, basically, a man by the name of Asaph, and he wrote 12 of them. And Moses wrote, we know, Psalm 90. So Moses wrote one. Uh, the sons of Korah wrote at least Psalm 73. Who's the sons of Korah? Well, you might remember in Numbers, Korah revolted against Moses' leadership. It was his sons then that came uh, behind him that wrote some of the Psalms as well. So they're written by a lot of different authors, uh, not, just, not just David. Look at letter C on your outline. What are some of the themes that you see in the Psalms? There are four themes that kind of that kind of come up over and over. One theme is monotheism. What is monotheism? It's the worship of one God. And so the culture around Israel worshiped many gods. Israel was unique in the fact that they worshiped one God. So many of the Psalms point to the fact there's only one God. Now we know that today. We're monotheists. We worship one God. We know that today, and that's not really a big deal to us because a lot of faiths are monotheists today, of the, of the major faiths. 
Judaism and Islam. And so the major, that's not a big deal, but to, but to them it was. So a lot of their psalms cry out, God, you are the only true and living God and all the other gods are false. So you see that a lot in the psalms because that theme was unique to Israel. And so they cried that out that the other gods were dead gods and false gods. They have hands that can't move. They have ears that can't hear. They have mouths that can't speak. And so you see things like that in the psalms. Second theme you see a lot in the psalms is creation. A lot about God being creative and what he created. He created the heavens. He created the worlds. He created the sun and the moon. You see a lot about creation in the psalms. But you also see a lot about the fall in the psalms. The fall of humanity. Sin. Uh, and it, so it'll talk about God created, but man fell. And so you see that juxtaposition a lot through the Psalms of God's creation, but yet humanity has fallen. Another theme that you see over and over is the covenant relationship with God. God, as you know, made a covenant with the Israelites. We're in that covenant relationship through Jesus Christ. Uh, and so you see that a lot in the Psalms as well, the covenant relationship with God and how special it is and how vital it is to you and to me, to our faith. So you see that over and over, the covenant relationship with God and how important that is. And then from time to time, you'll see eschatology in there. What's eschatology? Well, it's the study of the end times. And you'll see some eschatology through there of the Psalms talking about the end of the world and what God's going to do to enemies at the end of the world and how he's going to reign supreme at the end of the world. And so you'll see some of that through the Psalms as well. So those are some of the themes that you'll see through the Psalms. Letter D on your outline, the types of Psalms. There are nine different types of Psalms. If you're taking Old Testament survey in college, you're going to have to, on a test, give the nine different types of psalms that there are you have to memorize these but the first type of psalm is the psalm of lament now what is a lament it's a complaint so whenever you have a complaint against God you're not alone and you're not the first one many of the psalms are complaints God why why are you letting this happen deep grief they're complaining to God out of grief and suffering, crying out to God. Sometimes the lament is over anger over sin. And we feel that sometimes in our culture. Anger over the sin that's going on of people that are going against God's word. And that's felt in the Psalms as well. So some of them, many of them are songs of lament, complaints. Why is this happening? Second type of psalm, the hymns of praise, as you can imagine, songs of praise, praising God for who he is and what he's done. Third type, thanksgiving. A lot of psalms of thanksgiving through here. Thank you, God, for this, this, and, and the psalmist will enumerate what all he's thankful for that God's done. So psalms of, of thanksgiving. A fourth type, psalms of God's word or God's law. As you know, Psalm 119 is an acrostic of the Hebrew alphabet, each uh, section beginning with the first letter of that alphabet, and goes on for 176 verses, all about one theme, God's Word. So God's Word is prominent in the power of God's Word throughout the Psalms. The next type of uh, Psalm is, uh, the fifth type is Psalm of Wisdom, uh, how 
as you seek God, you're seeking wisdom. Proverbs about wisdom, but, but you see the Hokmah concept through Psalms as well. Songs of confidence is another, is another type of psalm. I'm going to trust in God. You are my light and my salvation. Psalm, I am making a declaration. I am trusting in you. See now why the psalms are so special to so many Christians? Because some of the emotions we feel are in the psalms. And sometimes I recommend to people, Pastor, I just... I don't know what's going on. I don't, know how, I don't know how to feel about what I'm going through. I don't know how to feel about what I'm thinking about my faith. Go to the Psalms. They are full of emotion about your relationship with God. Songs of confidence. I'm going to trust the Lord. The next type, the seventh type of psalm is, are called royal psalms. That means they are about the king, about the king of Israel. Uh, they're about the king's marriage many times. They're about the king's coronation as king many times. They're about the king's battles that he won in against other armies. But they're about the king. And so you'll see a lot of royal psalms. In fact, tonight's been called a royal psalm. But what's interesting, no king is ever specifically mentioned by name. Just talk about the king in general. And so a lot of royal psalms that are about the kings. Eighth type are called historical psalms. And those are psalms that are centered around an event that happened in the life of history. The Red Sea parting and the Israelites being delivered. An historical event that happened. Or going to captivity in Assyria. Or going to captivity in Babylon. But they're historical in nature. They talk about a certain event that happened in the history of Israel. And there's a psalm that is either commemorating it or remembering it or God's faithfulness in the midst of it. So that's the eighth type of psalm. And then finally the ninth is called prophetic psalms where you hear God's word as a prophecy, or as an oracle, or as a foretelling, or even talking about the future. So the eschatology that I mentioned. So that's the prophetic uh, types of psalms. One more uh, background note, and then we'll actually look at Psalm 27. The structure, letter E on your outline, the structure of the psalms. If you've ever noticed in your Bible, the psalms are divided into books. It'll say book 1, verses 1 to 41. Book 2, verses 42 to 72. Book 3, Psalm 73 to Psalm 89. Uh, book 4, Psalm 90 to Psalm 106. Book 5, Psalm 107 to Psalm 150. And so you look and you go, why does it mean the books? Well, this is a way that the Psalms have been divided to sing. And the, each of the books talk about a different theme. But there's also belief by scholars that the five books of the Psalms were meant to represent the Pentateuch. Of the Jews, which are the first five books of the Bible Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, which are the, the Pentateuch or the Torah, which is very important to the Jews. That the Psalms are divided into those five because it's a little mini picture of what they regard something very valuable, which is the Pentateuch. So that's why some people believe book one is talking about Genesis, and book two mirrors Exodus, and book three, Leviticus. And on and on like that. So that's why you see some of those that say book one or book two 
that's kind of what it means for the Jews to think of the Psalms. So that's kind of a little bit of background about the Psalms. So let's actually look at Psalm 27 now, 14 verses. Psalm 27 has been called a royal psalm. That means it's about the king. Some call it a royal ritual because it talks about the king and worship, which was uh, the ritual as, as well. So some people say that Psalm 27, we know David wrote it because it says of David, it's ascribed to him. Some people believe it was, the, it was a psalm written to commemorate the anniversary of David's coronation as king. So some people believe David didn't actually write it out there while he's on the run. He's running from King Saul and he stops, I'm going to write a psalm. He probably didn't do that. It's probably written reflecting back on it as a, a, a memory or, or anniversary of David's coronation of king. It's possible what a lot of theologians think. Psalm 27 to Jews today, very important. In fact, they recite it as a central part of what they call their Jewish High Holy Days. Now, if you don't know what the Jewish High Holy Days are, those are the, a stretch of days that Jews celebrate today as it, they revere it as their holiest time of the year. It incorporates Rosh Hashanah, which is the Jewish New Year, Yom Kippur, which is the Day of Atonement, and what they call the 10 days of repentance that follow. So you got the New Year, you got the Day of Atonement, and you got 10 days of repentance that follow, and they call it this is the holiest time of the year for Jews. During this holiest time of the year, they go to the synagogue a lot, about every day for 10 days, and read as a central part of the synagogue service during the holiest time of year, Psalm 27. So this is a really important psalm to the Jews as they, as they read through it. Many of the psalms begin with lament, complaint, and end with trust. Even though I'm complaining, God, I trust you. Most psalms begin with complaint and with trust. Psalm 27, the opposite. Begins with trust, ends with the complaint. So it kind of reversed from many of the psalms. So verses 1 to 6, really the division, 1 through 6, and then 8 through 14 are totally different. 7 through 14. So different, some scholars believe it's two psalms stitched together. But for whatever reason, uh, Psalm 27, two different concepts, and we'll talk about both here in just a moment. Here's the background, then we'll start reading the psalm. What was going on during the time the psalm was written? Sometimes when you can understand the background, it helps you understand the psalm. Well, one of two things were happening. Number one, it was whenever David was running from Saul. You remember the story? David defeated Goliath. Saul was king of Israel. David became immensely popular because he defeated Goliath. Saul became insanely jealous of David and wanted to kill him. Tried several times, threw his spear at him and missed. He must have been a bad shot. He threw his spear at him less three times and missed. God was preserving his life, but David ran and fled from King Saul. And as we know, he ran throughout the Judean hill, hillside, the desert. Those of you who've been to Israel, you, you've been through those. You've seen the caves David hid in. Saul sent his army after him. He's after him. And so David literally was running from King Saul. So 
Some believe the background is during that time when David's running from King Saul and literally fears for his life. It's possible. Here's a second possibility. If you remember, while David's running from King Saul, there was one particular incident the Bible talks about where David sought refuge away from Saul, and he went to an unusual source. He went to the Philistines. Now remember, they were the enemies. Those are the ones David defeated over and over. He went to the Philistines for refuge. Can you protect me from the king of Israel? And he went to a little town called Nob, N-O-B. And at first it's kind of like, oh, is this the fox trying to get in the hen house here? Is this why David's coming over here so he can, no, no, so, you know, so, you know the story. And so he's talking about, no, no, you, I, I'm, I'm on your, I just need protection, I'm on your side. And there was a man listening to this conversation in Nob who was a Jewish informant, actually Edomite, but he was an informant who went back and told Saul where David was. So he went to Nob, Saul did, and David knew his coming, fled for his life, and Saul was so angry with the citizens of Nob and the priests, he executed them. So some believe that man's name who was the informant was Doeg, D-O-E-G, Doeg the Edomite. Some believe this psalm is reflecting that incident where Doeg was listening and then went back informed and how God protected David in the midst of that. So that's a possibility as well. So with that as a background, let's now look at number one on your outline, first six verses. I have seven on the screen. It's actually the first six. But uh, the power of God. So he begins with confidence in God. Look at verse one. The Lord is my light. In my salvation, whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? So he begins running from King Saul with the confident assertion, I'm not scared of anybody because God will protect me. So he begins to trust, confidence in God. And whenever you see couplets like that of questions asked, that is a Hebrew poetic device to emphasize. So it's an emphasis. I'm not afraid of anybody. And so he uses three analogies to describe God in verse 1. Light, salvation, and refuge or a stronghold. Three of them. Now, all three are military terms. Light is, uh, in fact, Warren Wiersbe says this is the first time in all the Bible that anybody compared God to light. It's right here in 27 verse 1. Now, we, we see God as an analogy of light all the way through Scripture, but the first time it happened was here. It was David saying, God is my light. It's military imagery. He brings illumination. He is the one that gives me insight into how to do this battle, how to win this battle. Light here was a military term. Secondly, salvation was a military term. We think of salvation. God is my salvation. I think of Jesus. I think of that nine-year-old boy that walked up and trusted Jesus as Savior whenever I was nine. I think of being saved. That's not what he's talking about here. He's talking about military salvation. He's talking about winning a military battle of victory. 
So God is my light in military battles. He's my salvation. He gives me victory in the military battles. And he's the place I hide. He's my refuge or he is my safety from the enemy. Now think about this. David was a skilled, experienced warrior. A man of impressive physical strength. Most scholars believe he was a muscular, strong, big, bigger man. But yet he says, God is my strength. Not what I feel, not what I can do physically. God is my refuge and he is my strength. All of these are in the perfect tense in Hebrew. Now, what's interesting, if you study Hebrew, there is no past, present, and future like we have in English. There is, either something happened or it didn't in Hebrew. We've got past, present, and future. They don't. It happened or it didn't. But sometimes they use what's called a perfect tense to describe something that did happen, but it kind of has results for later. So that's, I think... Our permission to read what we're reading and experience say, what I experience, I can have the same affirmation David had. Let's go to verse 2. When evildoers assault me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. So he's making that confident, Saul's after me. The army of Saul's after me, but I am the one that, that it's going to, they're the one that's going to fall, stumble and fall. I'm going to be the one that's victorious. Literally, stumble and fall there literally means God's breath blows over them and they stumble and fall. So, they're after me, God literally would just go, oh, and they're gone. That's how powerful God is, David's asserting. Now, was he in fear for his life? Yeah. Do things happen to you and I that we're afraid of? Yeah. But we can have the same confidence. All it would take from God to solve your situation right now is one, oh, it's gone. You remember in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus was praying, and the authorities came to arrest him, and it's dark, and they had torches. They want to make sure they have the right man. And so they have torches, and they walk up, and they say, Are you Jack, Jesus of Nazareth? And he said, I am. And the Bible says they all fell backwards on the ground. All he had to say was, I am God's name. And they stumbled and fell. God's breath just blew them back. Now they staggered to their feet, went ahead and arrested him, crucified him. That was his mission. But it was just a reminder that who you're about to grab is much more powerful than you. And that was the reminder here in verse 2. Evildoers may assail me, but all it takes is God's breath, and they stumble and fall. Verse 3. Though an army encamp against me, which they did, my heart shall not fear. Though war arise against me, yet I will be confident. Things look bad, but because of my confidence in the Lord, I'm not going to be afraid. And you know, some of you might be there tonight. You might be going through loneliness. You might be going through death of a spouse. You might be going through cancer. You might be going through 
whatever situation with your kids. You may be going through a lot of things and you're going, you know, I'm tempted to fear. Tempted to be afraid. And sometimes fear is a problem for us. Fear is all the way through the Psalms. But so is the confident assurance that I have every reason to fear because this army's encamped against me. But I'm not going to. I'm going to be confident because I know who God is. And I know I can trust Him. Verse 4. One thing I ask of the Lord, and that will I seek after, he says, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. Now think about this verse for a moment. We'll spend not as much time toward the end of the psalm, but let's look at, at this right quick. Notice that David said, one thing that I've asked of the Lord... And one scholar called that statement one of the most single-minded statements of purpose anywhere in the Old Testament. God, one thing I'm going to do. You remember Solomon was asked, what's one thing you want? He said, I want wisdom. David said, one thing I want. I want to dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. To gaze upon the beauty of the Lord in his temple. Hold on a second. The temple wasn't built yet when David was running. Now, if this was done later, maybe so. But while he's running, there is no temple in Jerusalem. David's son built the temple, Solomon. So he's in the desert. He's not in Jerusalem. He's in a cave. He's not looking at the beauty of the Lord in the temple. He's in a cave hiding from David. Nor does he have an ambition to be a priest. He's not saying that. Or a Levite. He's not saying I have ambition to be that. He's just saying, Lord, wherever I am, may it be a sanctuary where I see you, I feel you, and I see your beauty. It's a good word for us too. You may not always be physically sitting in church. But may you always be at a place, no matter how hard it is. You may be in the cave running from somebody. But no matter how hard it is, may you always be at the place where you see the beauty and the majestic nature of God. Feel his presence and feel that closeness wherever you may go. Look at verse 5. For he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. He was probably inside the cave hiding underneath a rock, but God will set him up on the rock. Verse 6, and now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me, and I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. He says tent twice, doesn't he? One in verse 5, one in verse 6. What is the tent? Well, it could be a reference to the tabernacle in the wilderness. Remember, they didn't have the temple yet. So God's presence was in the tabernacle, which was a temporary makeshift tent. So maybe the temple and gazing on the beauty in verse 4 could be a reference to the tabernacle in verses 5 and 6. The 
tent. Some scholars believe it could have been the tent in Jerusalem that David had set up to house the Ark of the Covenant. That's possible as well. But he refers to the tent, which makes me think more of the tabernacle in the wilderness. Uh, but he says that that's, that, that's where he's going to offer his shouts of joy. Now go to number two in your outline, and I've just simply entitled this, I Believe, because it's, it's imperatives. God, here's what I want you to do, but it's still an affirmation of faith that you're going to do it. So let's look at verses 7 through 14 quickly, and we'll close. Verse 7, hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud, be gracious to me, answer me. Now, the last portion we're going to look at, these verses 7 through 14, they're cry for help, but they go from the general to the particular. Verse 7 starts out very general, verses 11 and 12 very particular. And what you're going to see, one imperative after another. Imperative is a command. Oh, God, would you please do this? Please do this. Please do this. So he's crying out, God, please. What does he say in verse 7? Hear, imperative. Be gracious, imperative. Answer me, imperative. He's crying out to God. Verse 8. You have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. It's a conversation. He's having a conversation. You told me seek, and I'm telling you, I'm going to seek. It's an imperative again. So uh, having the conversation with God. Verse 9. Hide not your face from me. How many times have we felt that? God, don't turn away from me. I need you now. Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger. Oh, you who've been my help, cast me not off. Forsake me not. Oh, God of my salvation. Look at these imperatives. Hide not. Turn not. Cast me not. Forsake me not. Here is a desperate man pleading for God. Don't leave me alone. Verse 10, for my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. Now, I don't think he's talking about his literal father and mother, Jesse and Jesse's wife. They're probably dead by now. And he says, my father and mother may forsake me. He's talking about those closest, most intimate relationships I have. They'll not do. Only God will do. We have been there. God, my friends, they've given me advice. The closest people I know and love are giving me advice. It's not enough. I want you. My father and mother forsake me. God will take me in. Verse 11. Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me on a level path because of my enemies. What's he known so far? Not a level path. If you've ever been to the Judean wilderness out there where he's running, it's up and down, it's hilly, it's rocky, it's climbing over rocks. And all he's ever known out there running from Saul is ruggedness. Oh, God, teach me the way to go and lead me on a level path for false witness or other because of my enemies. Verse 12. Give me not up to the will of my adversaries, Saul. For false witnesses have risen against me, and they breathe out violence. That's Saul who's breathing down his neck saying things about David that aren't true. You know who else had false witnesses breathing down his neck? 
Jesus. How many times did the Gospels tell us, and they, and they brought false witnesses against him at his trial. And they brought false witnesses, trying to bring a charge, but they didn't have any. Well, God knows a little bit about false witnesses. And so he's crying out, when I'm accused falsely. Some of you have been accused falsely. Things said about you, you want to defend yourself. And God says, don't defend yourself. I'll be your defense. Happens to pastors, happens to you. Things said aren't true. You want to defend yourself. Let God be your defense. Verse 13. I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. There he is in a cave. Things aren't good. But God, I believe in you. I believe there's a better day coming. And that's why I title it, I believe. And then finally 14 closes. Wait for the Lord. Be strong. Let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. There's that couple again. Not a question this time, but a statement. Wait for the Lord. Be strong. Let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. Probably everything within David wanted to say, God, do it now. But his confession was, God, help me wait. Because after all, those who wait upon the Lord will renew their strength. They'll mount up with wings like eagles. They'll run and not get weary. Because when everything within you wants to say, God, do it now. Hurry. Remember this. Wait upon the Lord. Be strong. Let your heart take courage. Wait. A psalm of trust. A psalm of crying out. A psalm of telling him, here's what I need from you. But a complete psalm of confidence. Now you can see why this psalm means so much the Jews, but also means so much to us. Well, I hope whenever you're in a time when you need it the most, you'll turn to the Psalms because the Psalms are songbooks, but they're also filled with great theology and great confidence in the Lord. And I hope that you'll find the Lord, you'll meet Him in the Psalms as well. All right, let's pray and we'll close down. Any questions or comments you have afterwards, see me or you're welcome to email me as well. God, thank you tonight for the Psalms and what they mean to us, and especially Psalm 27. Lord, during those times, many of our people may be there tonight wondering where you are, wondering why you haven't acted, literally on the run from a problem or a run from an enemy, run from a situation. God, may tonight they wait upon you, find confidence in you. May their heart find courage in you tonight. Because, God, we know you're trustworthy. We trust you, and we love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless you. See you Sunday.